Welcome to Hartnell Worth Watching, where we're checking in on the movie career of the first Doctor. This is a special episode of our podcast, where at the end of the season, we're looking into something very different, but related to what we've been watching. In this case, it's a movie starring William Hartnell playing the role of a career military dude, as he did so often in his pre-Doctor Who life. More on that in a bit. I'm the Doctor Who obsessive, trying to whip this group of misfits into shape before my retirement, after which I'll get to spend more time watching Doctor Who. My co-host is Guy, the hypochondriac constantly trying to get out of his podcasting duties with some new illness. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So have you been stalked by, I mean, have you fallen in love with any nearby girls lately? Oh, just Carol Ann Ford. She's the only (laughs) one for me. Okay. At the end of this podcast, we'll be talking about what we're covering for our second season, so stick around to find out. Now, some context for this film. It's the first carry-on film. The carry-on series is a British institution, which ultimately had 31 films, second in UK film history only to James Bond. It all started with this movie, Carry On Sergeant, and all the films had the same basic plot, which was a group of misfits taking on a new career and figuring out how to excel in the end. This is basically the 1958, very British version of Stripes. Now, Guy, you mentioned you actually haven't seen Stripes. I have not. I've seen a lot of things with Bill Murray, but not Stripes. Ah, okay. Before this movie, William Hartnell and others in the cast were already part of the TV show called The Army Game, in which Hartnell played basically the same role. In fact, a writer from The Army Game was on this movie, and the producers were worried that he'd steal plot ideas for the TV show before the movie was released. We'll see how that goes. (laughs) With that, let's get into the movie. Congratulations. May all your troubles be little ones, and remember the first ten years are the worst, with love from Granny. <laughs> In accordance with warning notice already sent you, you are required to report to Heathercrest National Service Depot. We start out with a wedding celebration. I was immediately impressed here because this movie opens exactly the same way as the Rocky Horror Picture Show. You get the opening credits with music, and then it dissolves into this church scene with the wedding march playing over it. pretty much identical yeah the Hmm. things that happen after that are a little different uh, as far as you know in one fewer transvestites in this one (laughs) (laughs) it's even an episcopalian church in the rocky horror picture show which is the american version of the anglican church which is presumably what we have in this movie (laughs) just an interesting little similarity there i thought they're having a wedding breakfast the father is reading notes, presumably telegrams that have been sent to the couple from people congratulating them and making jokes. And one of the notes turns out to be the military calling up Charlie, the groom for military service. Not only that, he has to be there that day. (laughs) His father has a little mix up here. Charlie, it's your call up. It happened to be my call up, dad. You sent off an application for a 28 day extension for the wedding. Didn't you? Me? No, you did. I asked you to do it. No, you didn't. You said you would. (laughs) The father was under the impression that Charlie was going to send the extension request 
you know, give him some extra time to enjoy being a newlywed. Charlie was under the impression that his father was going to, so you know how that goes. Yep. And so we say this is very sudden. So literally an hour later or something, Charlie is on a train to the military base, which means that there was no wedding night, which is going to be an important point in the film. And Charlie is in a train car with someone he doesn't know who will come to know. This person is Horace, who we can pretty quickly identify as the hypochondriac of the, the story. stifling in here. Please, my eardrums are very thin, very weak. No least suspicion of a draft and I'll finish. Thanks, mate. Ah, don't! Now what? Please, do you mind not smoking? It affects me. I've got a weak stomach. See, the thing to do here would have been open the window and smoke, and let all the smoke blow out the window, (laughs) and if Horace complains tell him he can stick his head somewhere else (laughs) so charlie asks where horace is going he must be going to a medical appointment and nope he's going into the army same as charlie and charlie says well how could you possibly be going into the army with all these clear medical problems (laughs) and horace has a funny little bit where he says medical (laughs) a farce a criminal farce army doctors (laughs) i'll tell you mate Two of everything you should have two of and you're in. Which, right off the bat, was a bit of a suggestive statement to me, as as we'll talk about at this time. In Britain, a film being released had to go through the censors, and they were very sensitive about things. And, mm-hmm. you know, to me, this seems a little bit on the edge, but apparently they were okay with it, so. Yeah, yeah, he was, he was referring to the family jewels, uh, mm-hmm. among other that, things. You know, they could yeah. probably say, well, we were talking about eyes or, you know, hands. Yeah, or, ears, you know, feet, all that, yeah. Now we switch to an officer's mess, and we're looking at a chalkboard, which is showing the rankings of the platoons that have just graduated. William Hartnell is standing there. He's a sergeant, and his latest batch of recruits didn't make the rankings. People are consoling him, but it turns out that he's been doing this for six years, and he's never had a champion platoon, and he's about to retire. The next platoon he gets will be his last, and then he'll be retiring. He wants to win this time. So he bets 50 quid with one of the other sergeants that his last platoon will win the championship. And I tried to look up how much that would be and i couldn't quite figure it out i guess you had better luck than i did now one of the things that confused me was they said quid and even though i've been to england a couple of times i don't know the difference between quid and pounds or or if there is a difference from what i read quid is the same thing as pounds just like we would say buck for dollars ah okay so that you found that this would be around $1,300 today or bucks. Yeah, <laughs> I, found, I found some different inflation calculators and they went anywhere from 1200 and change up to, I think one of them was right around 1400 And I found a chart for the UK military pay grades in 1958, but it's not clear what the sergeant's grade is. And I haven't been in the military, so I'm not sensitive <laughs> to all these fine gradations, but I think he'd be E6 or E7. And E7 with over 20 years service would be 350 a month. And that was pretty much the maximum that he could be making at this time. So, mm-hmm. so on the 350 a month, 50 would be a pretty big chunk of change out of that. Yep, they do seem to take it seriously in the movie. 
Now we go outside and we see a truck with the new platoon, including Charlie and Horace coming in. And then a laundry truck goes zooming by them. And his bride, Mary, is hanging out the back, yelling at him. And I was I was hoping here that maybe just all the stress of missing out on his wedding night might have just driven him insane. But uh, <laughs> it turns out this isn't that kind of movie. <laughs> Although... Horace's theory is, in fact, that he has imagined Mary, his wife, and that she wasn't really there, and that plays a little part for a little while here. Yeah. But yeah, her her goal is to sneak in so they can have their wedding night, which, again, Mm -hmm. seems pretty saucy to me, but my impression in terms of censorship was, well, if they're married, you know, certain things are okay, so. Yeah, and they don't get explicit about it. It's just, (laughs) you know, they're... You know, they're married. Uh, maybe they're just going to go uh, play patty cake or something. Take comfort, son. You're not the first man whose wife played patty cake on him. So Mary, once she gets out of the laundry truck, she sort of ends up in the kitchen and accidentally getting conscripted into kitchen duty. And the head of the kitchen is Nora. And Nora says, I don't care what your name is, as long as you can cut chips. (laughs) We quickly find out that she can't cut chips, which just simply means putting a potato in a potato slicer and slicing it, but she really (laughs) can't do that. (laughs) I I, I did get a little chuckle out of this part because she's just, cluelessly like like putting the potato up next to the hinge of the handle and you're just (laughs) not not having much luck figuring out where that darn potato goes and i think there's an implicit backstory here between the nice wedding situation they had and nora sees that mary is wearing nice high-heeled shoes so the implication is she's pretty upper class or you know at least middle upper class so she doesn't normally spend her time in the kitchen doing this sort of thing yeah And when she sees the high heels, Nora gets suspicious and says, where's your labor exchange card? And I looked this up and it turns out labor exchange was a government agency that was created to find temp jobs for people so that they didn't find their own job. So it it was essentially an early temporary agency run by the government. And Mary then fesses up that she's not really here to work in the kitchen. You know, she's trying to have her wedding night. We then move on. Hartnell is now on the way with his corporal to review the new recruits, and they're looking at a chart of the incoming folks, and Hartnell is very encouraged. He says, judging by their names, this should be a fine lot. And he reads through the names, you know, you have Brown and Bailey and such, and then he gets to go lightly. (laughs) He says, go lightly. Well, what's in a name? (laughs) (laughs) We go into the barracks where the new recruits are hanging out, and Hartnell makes his traditional speech as the leader of this group of misfits. But he says he looks at them all and he sees something fine and he doesn't think he's going to need to be a jerk. He feels distinctly encouraged at the prospects. And immediately, the hypochondriac Horace raises his hand and requests to report sick. (laughs) And Hartnell actually says, okay, you can report sick tomorrow. And then Charlie, our groom, requests leave on compassionate grounds and starts to explain. And Hartnell says, you don't have to say this in front of everybody. You can talk to our company commander later. Then... We have this weird thing. I'm not quite sure how it's supposed to happen, but (laughs) you hear a guitar string break or go or something and the camera swerves over and there's this, we'll find as the kind of rock and roller guy standing in front of his bed and there's a guitar in his bed. 
No idea why the car would have made noise, but because no one's anywhere near it. <laughs> but Cardinal <laughs> says he should keep it out of sight. And the guy says, I dig. So again, first, Cardinal's being nice again. And also we have one of those characters where he's using what the movie imagines to be the slang of the kids at the time to, to mm-hmm. show you what kind of person he is. Yep. And then uh, rather late, Mr. Go Lightly comes in and he lives completely up to the name. <laughs> He's a very prim and proper guy with, you know, very kind of thin rimmed glasses who prances across the room. <laughs> yeah. Can't imagine what the implication here is. <laughs> well, it's ob- He's obviously an accountant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, the last one we meet is Bailey. He's lying in his bed and he protests at how loud everyone else is being. <laughs> And in a very kind of tweety voice. And to me, I was kind of thinking he also seemed gay, but I I think it turns out he's really just an upper-class twit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think he's a a posh toff or something like that. (laughs) Yep. So then we go outside with Hartnell and his corporal, and Hartnell is heartbroken. I don't know. Why should it happen to me? Isn't there any justice? (laughs) But he tells the corporal he's going to try something unusual that he's never done before. Instead of yelling at these guys and being mean to them. No, Coppin, we've got to be subtle. Subtle. They must be kind. Considerate. Kind? Yes. These are delicate blooms, Coppin. He thinks <laughs> maybe being nice will have the effect he needs. Yeah. This is probably as good a place as any to mention that you really start noticing a contrast to the character of the doctor here. Because he really does have a lot of moments where he's kind of kind and gentle and patient. Uh, you know, he loses it now and then, too. But oftentimes, he just really seems like a genuinely friendly, nice kind of guy who's trying to help these guys get better. The doctor rarely comes across that way <laughs> to me. He's usually got some other angle going on. Yeah, I doubt the doctor would be calling them delicate blooms. <laughs> <laughs> We get to the basic storyline of Mary and Charlie, you know, are they going to be able to have their wedding night on their wedding day? And we're in what I'll call the mess hall, although it doesn't look like a mess hall like an American military film would. It's more like a little restaurant. Mm. And we meet Brown. He's supposed to be the dumb guy. And it turns out he's been here forever. He's He tends to sweep up and do chores. Because he went through three rounds of training and failed all of them. And finally, the army just gave up and lets him do chores until his tour of duty is up. And he shows the group that he has an excuse chit, a little piece of paper, for each kind of exercise that they have to do. You swing on a rope, you climb up a rope, you have to do shooting, etc. So for each of these exercises, he has this little chit that lets him get out of that kind of drill. And Horace says... Blimey, you're just an eep of chits. Interestingly, the censors were not happy with this line, and I don't know why. I, my assumption is that chits was a stand-in for a swear word there, maybe in some standard phrase. Yeah, well, you know, the pile of... Uh, yeah. <laughs> so on, uh, I think that's about the only way you can take it, otherwise the line is kind of aimless. <laughs> Charlie's not there, and the other folks around the table say, where's Charlie? And Bailey, the upper-class twit guy, says, well, with his wife, of course, love will find a way. But then Charlie shows up. Turns out he's been looking all over the camp, and he can't find his wife, which Horace says is proof that he, in fact, was delusional. His wife is not actually there. 
Horace is giving him psychological advice and saying now that he's accepted that he's delusional, now he can start to cure himself, which is funny because Horace has accepted all sorts of things about himself but can't seem to manage to cure himself. Hmm. But at that moment, Charlie's wife comes through the back kitchen door. Charlie rushes up to her and wants to know how she got here. And Mary says, never mind how I got here. I'm here and tonight's our wedding night. (laughs) And there's really no subtlety here. Charlie says, you don't mean... And she does mean that. (laughs) And Charlie says, but how, where, you know, I've got all these guys in my room. I can't do anything. It turns out that Nora, the kitchen person has arranged everything for them. While they're talking, Horace has come up and Nora sees Horace and she falls hard for him instantly. (laughs) It's really, really (laughs) obvious. Her eyes are bugging out, et cetera. And she says, anything I can do for you, soldier? My note here is she looks like she's about to boil his rabbit. (laughs) He's freaked out by this person doing bug eyes at him and coming onto him like that. And he runs away. There'll be the first of many times that he flees. And Nora immediately declares to Mary and Charlie that she's in love, says it must be the aura created by your happiness. Mm -hmm. She now tells them that she has arranged a spare room for them. We immediately switch to Mary creeping down the hall and going to the door of a room and opening it. And there's someone in the bed sleeping. And Mary says, darling, don't pretend you're asleep. And then she comes closer and she says, wouldn't you rather have the light on for this, basically? Which, again, I thought was a little interesting, a little explicit. And turns on the light. And, of course, it's actually Hartnell sleeping there. And Mary flees the room. (laughs) And then we see she's gone off somewhere to hide. And then Charlie goes through the same process, comes into the hall, goes to the same room, knocks on the door, door opens. He goes in to kiss Mary, except it's Hartnell standing there. So he almost kisses Hartnell, who's not amused. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this got a little chuckle out of me, you know, because he he knocked on the door. And after a moment, Hartnell got out of bed and opened the door and. They're right, you know, six inches from his face as Charlie making this kissing face. (laughs) It was good. It's an old gag, but it worked. Yeah. And now they leave us to our own devices about whether Charlie and Mary did or didn't. We don't know what happened. Oh, yeah, I saw your note there. I thought you were talking about whether Charlie and Hartnell did or didn't. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I wasn't too worried about that. (laughs) (laughs) And we're to the next morning, and they announce each day in the movie by showing you someone playing Reveille on a trumpet. We start out with Horace. He's gone to the sick bay along with a number of other people. You know, you go into the sick bay and see if you can get excused for the day. He's complaining about his knee, says his knee is all messed up. So he's told to take off his trousers and then to go into the doctor's office. And he does this, and then he runs out screaming because it turns out the doctor is a woman, Captain Clark. And Mm -hmm. Horace immediately, you know, he's standing there in his underwear. He immediately demands a different doctor. And he's told, this isn't the National Health Service. Either you see Dr. Clark or you don't report sick at all. (laughs) So he's more concerned about reporting sick. So he gives in and goes in to see the doctor. And the doctor is a very interesting character, a very uh, tall large woman but not large in the sense of fat more large in the sense of bulkier she looks like she could carry an ox on her shoulders <laughs> she has stature yeah also i assume the first time i was watching this that she was a nurse but it's clear actually if you pay attention to the movie she is a doctor and they don't make anything mm-hmm. of this like it's they don't treat it as a joke they don't say anything about it 
and she has a real presence that makes you take her seriously. So I thought that was pretty impressive uh, for a movie at this time. Yeah, yeah, and she actually doesn't get a, a huge role or a bunch of juicy lines, really, but she's an entertaining character. I wouldn't mind seeing her in other things. <laughs> and she does have chemistry with Horace. Oh, yeah. So, and speaking of which, he's sh- trying to show her how his, his knee's all messed up and he can't possibly do anything today, and she declares there's nothing wrong with his leg. And he says, but I feel like it's floating. And she says, well, tell me when it's sinking. And then that's it for that. He didn't get out of it. We're now outside. The new recruits have been marched in front of Hartnell. They're now all in uniform for the first time. Hartnell is preparing them to meet the company commander. And there's some fun interaction between Hartnell and Golightly here, because Golightly doesn't know when to keep his mouth shut. So he he's one of these people, if you read one of these friends, who whatever happens, he just has to comment on it. So when Hartnell does something, Golightly will say, oh, that's very good, sir. <laughs> and Hartnell will <laughs> yell at him, and you know he'll say something else, and he just won't shut up. And to make matters worse, Hartnell and his corporal are teaching them how to stand at attention and at ease. I think when they talk about at ease, they talk about standing lightly, <laughs> and then when they all go at ease, Hartnell says, Bobby, go lightly. Don't go quite so lightly next time. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> joke's over, joke's over. <laughs> this is a pretty good line. And the funny thing is, go lightly actually laughs and cracks up at this, which only annoys Hartnell more. <laughs> and next, when they then snap to attention, in the process of snapping to attention, go lightly manages to knock himself over. <laughs> and Hartnell runs up to him and he starts to lose his temper. He goes into his normal mode, starts to yell at this guy, give him crap. And the corporal kind of comes over and reminds him, 50 quid, delicate blooms. <laughs> Hartnell backs up and tries to be nicer. Finally, the commander arrives and he goes along the line. And his job is to evaluate each soldier and in most cases to give them a little insult. And he has a template he uses where he's always doing these little mathematical statements. So he says, alert mind plus responsive body equals efficient soldier, and that sort of thing. And half the time, it doesn't really make any sense. He talks to the rock and roller guy who's named Galloway, and he says, who are you? Galloway, sir. Useless answer. Two factors omitted. Number and rank. A soldier without a number and rank is like a man without a soul. <laughs> so he has these very, very precise statements. He asks another person to first to recite their number, name, and rank, and then says, now do it backwards. And of course, that totally messes the soldier up. And commander says, if you can't think backwards, how do you expect to think the proper way? (laughs) And then I think the particularly funny one here, he comes to Bailey, the kind of upper-class twit, and he says, your rank. (laughs) And Bailey says, well, that's a matter of opinion. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably just worth mentioning in passing that here, Potts, the commander, discovers that Hayward, one of the new recruits, he comes from a distinguished military family. Ever heard of General Hayward? My father, sir. Really? Rear Admiral Hayward? My grandfather, sir. Air Commodore Hayward? My uncle, sir. Ah, quick test. What's the first thing that comes into your head? Women, sir. You're a soldier by tradition and instinct. Then this will come up briefly later on. Yep. So now the soldiers are sent back to the barracks to prepare for their first inspection. So the idea is that their kit, you know, all of the stuff they have, not just their clothing, but all of the military equipment they have has to be laid out on the bed in a certain way so it can be inspected. They've been given a diagram showing them what they're supposed to do. The platoon kind of gives Bailey some crap because he was being all individualistic earlier in the day when they were with the commander and caused them some trouble. And Bailey says he's decided not to be too individualistic. 
He says, I've changed my mind. Sociologically, it's important for me to find out just how far one can retain one's individuality in the army. Now, I'm not quite sure what that means because if he's not going to be individualistic, but he's going to find out how far he can retain his individuality. I think he means in the context of playing along with the game. Mm -hmm. The real joke here is he says, sociologically, it's important for me to find this out. And Charlie responds with, biologically, it's important I get my leave. <laughs> and so here, I think it becomes a little clearer and, and we'll see it becomes clearer later that probably his wife and he did not manage to connect last night. Yeah. In fact, we switch to the kitchen and Nora is consoling Mary and, and says, better late than never. So pretty clear what the deal is. <laughs> yeah. And back in the barracks. Charlie's looking at the diagram for their kit and what it lists out. And one of the things it specifies is that they need to have two fire extinguishers. And he realized they don't have any fire extinguishers. Maybe this is like a trick or something to see if they were paying attention. So he and Golightly run to the kitchen to find some fire extinguishers. And they convince Nora and Mary to let them borrow a couple of fire extinguishers. Meanwhile, the inspection with the commander and Hartnell has started. And of course, Charlie and Golightly come rushing into the room with their fire extinguishers and manage to bump into each other and set off the fire extinguishers and spray <laughs> foam over everything in the room. <laughs> we spent probably about a two-minute process of them spraying foam everywhere. <laughs> yeah, again, this is one of those oldies but goodies, you know, and so you've seen it many times before, but it's still still entertaining. <laughs> yeah, and of course, they managed to get both the commander and Hartnell all covered in foam, and they're not too happy. <laughs> there's actually a bit of a non sequitur here it makes me think that in the editing they switched around the order of things because charlie is now brought into the commander's office and since he was one of the two people who just sprayed the commander with foam you would think he'd be getting dressed down for that but that doesn't come up at all so it makes me suspect that this was scene was supposed to come earlier in the story but charlie is there to get his leave from the commander and he's trying to, you know, being a 1958 British movie, he can't just come out and say why he needs this leave. So he's sort of hinting at it, and there's all sorts of misunderstandings. And the commander manages to think that Charlie has knocked up a girlfriend. <laughs> then he thinks he's cheating on his wife. And at some point he says, well, you need to see our chaplain because he thinks he needs to get married to his girlfriend. And Charlie says, I've already seen a chaplain. Hartnell says, no, he hasn't. And <laughs> this causes all sorts of, of trouble. And finally, Charlie comes out and says, look, I am married, sir, but I'm not married, sir, if you know what I mean. <laughs> There's a little bit of a <laughs> wink, wink. And finally, the commander turns to Hartnell and said, maneuvers canceled, eh? <laughs> Which I would say, pretty good one. Yeah, as soon as he mentions that he got married on the same day that he came into the service, that, that clears it up for the commander. <laughs> and when he said the maneuvers canceled line and all the other kind of jokes, you know, innuendo that's been in here, it reminded me of a documentary, a really interesting little documentary I saw about Match Game. Do you remember that? Uh, have you ever seen oh, yeah. that game was show? That, uh, that was Gene Rayburn, wasn't it? Yeah, was... so, yeah, he would ask a leading question, which would leave out, like, one word in a sentence. And it was always mm -hmm. body, right? The implication was always body for what the missing word was. It could be innocent or it could be body. Everyone at the North Pole was shocked to see Santa Claus being blanked by his elves. In the early days, I think it was in the 60s originally, maybe early 70s, what the contestants would do was they would put innuendo statements in for what should go into that missing word, right? And everybody would kind of laugh at the innuendo. And then somebody would be voted for having the best response. But at some point after the world changed and you had hippies and you know, Woodstock and all that, 
the show became explicit. They'd say something like, what was it that the nun touched? And in the past, it would have been some innuendo thing. But at some point, the answer started to be penis. And once <laughs> they said that, the magic of the show was gone because the magic of the show was the innuendo, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so once the commander understands what's going on, he grants Charlie seven days leave. Now, Charlie thinks he can just leave right away. But the commander says, no, no, it'll come later. But we never find out really when it's supposed to come. <laughs> yeah. As uh, Hartnell and Charlie leave, the commander brings over a large page of charts that he tacks up on his board. And this is a chart to track the progress of each platoon. And I, I noticed this is just a minor thing, but for all his discipline, the commander spelled the sergeant's name wrong. He left the E off. <laughs> So the chart is fresh. Anything is possible. And we now see the platoon engaging in their first round of exercises, the different things they'll need to do in order to become champions. As we talked about before, they have to climb up a rope. They have to swing across a river. They have to do shooting. They have to use a bayonet to stab things. We just get a montage of them doing terribly at all these things. You know, they fall in the water. They can't hit anything, etc. We then see the commander, and this is only their first week, Drops their rating on from 100, the, the starting point, to 50. So they're already halfway down to the bottom. Not a good start. Yeah. And we get back to a regular routine. Each morning, basically, Horace comes to the doctor's office with his new excuse for why he should be excused for that day. <laughs> and this time he says, Doctor, I can feel a, a definite thump regularly. A boom, 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 boom. That, that's it. Yes. Strong... That's your heart beating normally. <laughs> so once again, he, he doesn't get his way. He leaves the doctor's office, and it turns out that Nora, the kitchen person, has been waiting outside, lying in wait for him. She has a cart she's carrying stuff on, so she runs her cart into him on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> and then she asks him how he feels about getting letters, and she's clearly testing the idea that is he going to be getting a letter from a girlfriend or a wife? Once he understands what's going on, Horace once again flees. <laughs> so yeah. He's clearly not into this. And now we get to see the platoon engaging in bayonet practice. So there's a couple of kind of pathetic straw men hung up that they're supposed to run at with bayonets. And Hartnell's explaining to them, think of all the things you love, freedom, your day of release, me, whatever you want. This evil monster stands between you and it. He'll kill you rather than see you get it. He delivers these lines really well. Puts a little bit of passion into it, you know, tries to raise the stakes a little. You know, it's, a, it's a good line. <laughs> so Horace is first, and he can't even hold the gun properly, and he runs forward and manages to just throw the gun, and it flips around and lands embedded in the ground right in front of Hartnell, so just about wet through his foot. <laughs> we then see various other bayonet hijinks. One person manages to miss them all together. Go Lightly gets really, really into it. It stabs the hell out of it, calling all sorts of names. So he clearly has some issues he's, he's working out. The funny one to me was Bailey, the upper-class twit guy. After he stabs the straw man, he goes over to Hartnell and says, Don't you think this is a trifle out of date in a world bristling with H-bombs, Sergeant? Basically, this is just a sequence to kind of present how they're doing on each of these things. Not, not too well. Yeah. And we're halfway through the movie. It's a pretty short movie, about 80 minutes. After that bayonet exercise, 
the chart is going downhill again. <laughs> the platoons assembled for their next learning experience. William Hartnell tells his corporal to demonstrate a slow march. But you got to say it right. It's oh. a slow march. <laughs> <laughs> a slow march. <laughs> Hartnell says, this is used, or, or Grimshaw, I should say. Grimshaw <laughs> is his name in the yeah, show. I just say Arnold because we know what he Yeah. He says, this is used at funerals. Work at it. You'll very likely be doing it at mine. <laughs> they might get a little kick out of that. The surprise, it's, they're not very good at it. <laughs> so Hartnell, Hartnell yells at him. He goes up to Bailey, who is the posh toff type kind of guy, you know, the wealthy twit. Hartnell says, look at you standing as if you're pregnant. Bailey gets off a line that is a bit tiptoeing on the edge of scandalous here. He <laughs> says, wouldn't surprise me after the way I've been mucked about. <laughs> yeah, and mucked about being the obvious little thing there. <laughs> I looked into this, and the censors were concerned about the line, but they gave them a lot of leeway because this is a light comedy. So what they would do is they would review the script before the movie was made. And what they did say about a bunch of these kinds of things was... We're not going to guarantee that we're going to let this go, but we'll see how you do it. And since it's a light comedy, we'll kind of give you some leeway. <laughs> this is probably really on the edge. <laughs> yeah. They're all gathered in a classroom after that, and they're learning how to assemble a Bren gun. <laughs> I'd never heard of this before, by the way. Yeah, it's a, it's a big, heavy gun. One of my friends actually, I don't know if he has one or just part of one. I think he may have needed more parts for it, but he's a World War II enthusiast, so he collects stuff like that. Anyway, uh, they're big, heavy guns, and they're learning how to put them together. But Horace, who is sitting up near the front, he has an allergy. The oil that's used to lubricate the gun doesn't agree with him, so he's at it again. Yeah, and then Bailey offers to switch places with him. Yeah, yeah, Bailey the Toff, he kindly offers to come up front and let Horace Strong go to the back. That's something that we may touch on a little bit later, is that every now and then, throughout this movie, you'll see little moments where these guys are trying to help each other out, just in small ways. So after they've switched seats, both of the ladies, both Mary and Nora, sneak up to two different windows. Charlie's sitting way in the back. He starts playing kissy-kissy with Mary on the window glass. Nora is rather forward. She's got Horace's attention. She holds up her hand, and she's pointing to her bare ring finger. Her intentions are very clear. And, and they've had all of, like, five seconds of conversation so far. <laughs> yeah. As I put it, you know, hey, how about a first date <laughs> or even a first conversation? <laughs> yeah. Well, the instructor spots Charlie at the back window, not paying attention to him, apparently, because he's paying attention to his new <laughs> Well, because he literally has his lips <laughs> on the windows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the instructor wants to see if he really was listening, so he calls him up to the front and tells him to put the gun back together. In pretty short order, Charlie does. He doesn't even really fumble with it. He just knows how to do it, and the instructor is impressed, but... Then Charlie has to spoil it all, although he is telling the truth, but, but still, he kind of kind of loses the halo effect when he admits that he wasn't really listening. He just used to work in the factory where they made the guns. <laughs> yep. 
Horace is in the doctor's office again. He's showing the doctor that he can't close his hand without it popping back open. He's got a hand with a will of its own, <laughs> as he puts it. And suddenly, his other hand starts doing it. Now he's got two hands that he's trying to ball them up into fists, and as soon as he does, they spring open <laughs> again. Which to me sounds like they did start to a horror movie. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah, could be, but this isn't that kind of movie. <laughs> <laughs> so the doctor seems unconvinced, and uh, Horace tells her, You've got no feeling for the sick. I remind you I'm an officer. <laughs> and I remind you that I'm a sick man. And with that, he makes a fist and slams his hand on the desk to emphasize <laughs> his point. And he leaves it sitting there, and, you know, slowly he looks down at the fist, sitting there on the desk, resolutely not opening back up, <laughs> and realizes he may have injured his case somewhat. <laughs> the doctor says, dismissed, see you tomorrow. She she does this again once or twice later in the movie, and it reminds me of that, you've probably seen the Warner Brothers cartoon where there's <laughs> the sheepdog and the wolf. They clock out at the end of the day. Good night, Ralph. See you tomorrow, Sam. <laughs> so that reminds me of. They go to the shooting range to do some target practice and try out their new education on the Brim gun. It's not going well. <laughs> Horace, he doesn't want to get down on the ground because the ground's wet. He's got rheumatism in addition to all of his other complaints. Uh, Herd Noel has a good line here. He says, you'll suffer from life imprisonment if you don't get down. <laughs> the next man, there's, this is kind of a stupid joke, but it struck me as funny. <laughs> Herd Noel says, raise your backside. And the man thinks he says, raise your backside. So he lifts his butt up in the air. It's, it's funny. <laughs> Shakespeare would have made that kind of joke. So what can you say? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a, it's, it's good. I like it. <laughs> I have a pretty broad sense of humor. I think, I think of anything, my overall beef with the humor in this movie is not that it's too broad. I, I don't mind broad humor or reusing old gags or any of that. It's that there should be more of it, in my opinion. <laughs> There's a lot of dry spells in this, to my thinking. Yeah, well, this is some of my experience, even with what's considered to be really, really great early British comedy like, there used to be, uh, there's what are called these Ealing Studio films with Alec Guinness. They're supposed to be great, and I went back and watched them, and, and I mean, they're better than this, not to spoil our <laughs> our response to this movie, but again, it's that kind of quiet, dry little bit, and then move on, and, you know, it's just a pacing and an approach that I don't think has really stood up to time, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's what we're dealing with here. It's like, well, we'll just say this little line and you'll have half a second to kind of register that it was a joke and we will move on. And it'll be a kind of half funny joke. And, you know. Oh, yeah. The next event or the next item in their training is the rope swing across a very small puddle. It shouldn't be too hard. I think even I could manage that without too much difficulty. But, of course, uh, most of them find a way to fall in. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and this, this is a cute scene because each one of them has, has his own unique way of failing, so that's kind of fun. Of course, this ends up with the chart of their points getting worse, and it's not clear to me exactly how the chart works because it says it's a chart of points, so I don't know if they're like building up a total of points. My take is everybody starts at 100, and so they start at the max, and then 
when they screw up, points are taken away. Okay, so it's just the current standing. Yeah, so they could go back up at any point, but the way their platoon yeah. is going, they just keep going down. <laughs> right, yep. right. So, so basically, the chart overall doesn't make a lot of difference. It's the final score that matters. Right, right. <laughs> anyway, the chart's getting worse at this point. We see in the kitchen, Mary and Charlie preparing food, and he's using it. Something like a meat grinder, except I guess you'd call it a pasta grinder. He's stuffing dough into it. The scene kind of made me wince a little, because he's just <laughs> grabbing this dough and pressing it down into the funnel with his hand. I guess he's being careful, but you know that if he stuck it his hand too far down in there. Yep. <laughs> Charlie's grinding his dough and talking with Mary, and they both agree that Nora's a nice lady, and they should try and help her get her the man she wants if they can. Yeah. They decide to set a little trap for Horace, trying to lure him into an encounter with Nora. Yeah, Mary tells him she wants him to, to deliver a message that's supposed to be from Hartnell, right? <laughs> yeah. Nora is in the kitchen later on, and Horace reports to the kitchen the message that was gotten to him that says he's supposed to report for fatigues. It took a little research, but fatigues not only is combat uniform, but it's also, in Canadian and British military terms, it's the same thing as what Americans call KP, or kitchen police. It's peeling potatoes and other <laughs> useful things Yeah, like and, and it's kind of the military version of detention, right? You, yeah. You've screwed up. You're going to have to go spend a few hours peeling potatoes. This is the kind of service this podcast provides. Both of us had to research this to try and find it. Because it actually, if you just search the term, it doesn't come up. So you have to do a little digging to figure out what's going on. Yeah. If you search for fatigues, you'll get the battle dress, which is the most common. But we prevailed because we, <laughs> we care. We care about That's the it. listeners. <laughs> yep. So the reason he's on fatigues, supposedly, even, you know, officially he's not. This is all just a big cover story to get him hooked up with Nora. But allegedly it's because he screwed up the rope jump across the little puddle. But, so Nora is trying to put the moves on him. She wants to talk about life. <laughs> Horace has a rather dark... I think it's one of my favorite lines in the films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little darker than most of this movie. He, he says... Life. Life. <laughs> Infection. Decay. And death, that's life. What's your name? <laughs> And he says it as he's cutting a rotten spot out of a potato, which he then goes on to carry around for most of the scene. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty well done. Yeah. <laughs> I love the next part here. Oh, yeah. Nora asks him, what's your name? If we were paying real close attention, we might have noticed earlier on she did catch his name when she first met him because Charlie mentioned it, but she asks it anyway, presumably for making conversation or some such thing. Who knows? Right, but she's already said she wants to marry him. <laughs> so, so she starts yeah. with, Let, let's get a ring, and then why don't you tell me your name? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And eventually she reveals, you know, you have already made it my, my business to find out your name. From there, she just ramps up. She finally gets to the <laughs> point where she tells him that he's in her heart. And then she says, oh, Horace, I'm a woman, violent and passionate, and I'm yours. <laughs> yeah, it confesses that we 
this fatigue thing is all a trick and that she loves him. Lenora figures they should spend a half an hour getting to know each other before they go any further, which is admirable restraint, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Horace seems rather relieved of that idea. At the first opportunity, he says, good night, and he runs out of the kitchen. <laughs> As he runs, he passes by Grimshaw and the colonel, and then uh, Nora follows close behind. Grimshaw says something to the effect of, uh, well, at least he's good for something. <laughs> the next scene, we've got uh, Grimshaw in Potts's office, the commander's office. He's brought Haywood into Potts's office, and they're going to see if they can't convince him to sign up for officer's training, because with the glorious history of his family being various esteemed officers, it seems only fitting that he should carry on the tradition. And, of course, Grimshaw thinks that this will be a feather in the platoon's cap. Yep. It'll earn him a few points on the big chart there, maybe. Unfortunately, Haywood doesn't want it. He explains to the commander that just as the commander went into the military, instead of doing what his ancestors did, they had a pottery company, I think. Well, Haywood's the other way. His ancestors were in the military, and he says he's just not a leader of men. The commander is disappointed. He says, principle of heredity shatter. <laughs> I thought this was a really odd term, and I looked it up, and I couldn't find any reference other than to the actual concept of the principle of heredity, but mm -hmm. I couldn't find any reference to the principle of heredity shattered phrase, so this may be their own. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just the principle that if you had a good military career, then your kids can get in as legacies, I think is what American colleges call it. The commander is a little um, dishonest in a way here. I mean, he says, oh, that's fine and everything. But once Hartnell and Haywood leave, he then marks down the platoon on the chart again. So he's like taking yeah. revenge for, for Haywood <laughs> not having accepted this. Yeah, it's not fair, but that's the military for you. <laughs> They're out of the uh, obstacle course. And there are a couple of good sight gags in this scene, you know, because they're just running over a whole bunch of different obstacles instead of sticking to one. They're trying to go over a fence, and one of them gets hung up on it, so he's just dangling from the top of a fence. Yep. You know, so on and so forth. They're just screwing it all up all around. And in the meantime, while they're screwing up, the officers are just getting on their case for anything they can find, you know, a loose button or a guy needs a haircut, whatever. <laughs> yeah, well, they're hanging upside down from something. He's like, oh, your button is loose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's a, it's a cute little scene. And then after they've gone through the obstacle course, they're heating up their food. They've got a they've got a little can of food that they put it into a fire ring. And one of the guys says, "Didn't he say to pierce the tin?" Well, the commander comes along, and he sees that the guys seem to be handling things pretty well here, as far as having gotten a fire started and cooking food on it. And he says, "There may be hope for you yet." <laughs> and the unpierced tin explodes, and it knocks the commander over, and it sprays some kind of beef stew or whatever was in there. <laughs> Probably spam or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, they used to call SOS in the military, right? <laughs> yeah. And once again, the chart rating drops. Pretty much the bottom at this point, yeah. It can't really drop anymore at this point. And just to make the point, <laughs> to get the next scene here. <laughs> yeah. 
And so the troops are all gathered and the commander says, this is your last day of training. Tomorrow you'll get proficiency tests and you'll finish the worst of all the platoons here. Someone's got to be bottom, but this is absolute extremism. Worst we've ever had here. <laughs> I think he also says, I'll be glad to see the back of you. <laughs> he does one of his formulas. <laughs> Clumsy fools plus innate idleness equals you, all of you. <laughs> so he's really giving up the old pep talk there. Horace has gone back to see the doctor for his daily meeting. This time it's an itchy scalp. Well, at this point, she doesn't even bother examining him. She grabs her hat and she says, we're going for a ride. Uh, Which could be suggestive. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, could be, but it turns out that she's actually presenting him as a curiosity to her colleagues. She says to the doctors, I'm a humble GP, general practitioner. These are all more advanced doctors, and she wants each one of them to examine him and draw their own conclusions. They go to a whole line of curtained rooms. She drags him down while Horace is saying, Oh, you really do care about the sick. (laughs) She she drags him down to the very last room to start the examination. And now each one is a different type of specialist. There's a radiologist who puts him behind an x-ray, a real-time x-ray. And he's just delighted. Look at this rib cage. (laughs) Well, it amuses because he has him just standing there, and then he invites all the other doctors in to look. Now, we take like a tenth of a second x-ray image, right? They just have him standing there for multiple minutes being exposed to x-rays. Which, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. he calls all the other doctors yeah. to, <laughs> over to take a look at it. Yeah. <laughs> in another examination where they're, you know, the, it, it just keeps building up according to pattern, you know, that every time... They do something, they take his blood pressure, I think it's 120 over 80, which they say is a textbook reading. And of course, he's upset because they're not finding anything wrong with him. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, quite the contrary. They're finding that he's a model of health. One of the doctors makes the compliment to him that your lungs have the texture of asbestos. (laughs) I thought this was amusing because... I think it was around the 1970s when there really started to be a lot of big concern over asbestos used as a building material and what the fibers of it could do to your lungs and so forth. I looked it up, and it turns out as early as the 30s, it was known in medicine, though not really among the general public, that asbestos could have bad effects on the lungs. So this joke is kind of hard to interpret. He seems to be saying that your lungs are healthy as a bull. <laughs> but yet again, it's already known, at least in medical circles, that you don't want to be breathing a lot of asbestos. Yeah. I, I'm going to say the writers weren't doctors. So they were just trying to say he had tough lungs and yeah, made yeah. An un- unintentionally funny analogy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I may have overthought that one a little bit, but then again, you never know. <laughs> Now that he's been found to be a model of health, the nurse says there's only one avenue left open to us, psychiatry. And the psychiatrist has a little couch right out in the main room, apart from all the curtained cubicles. And the psychiatrist turns, and for about three seconds, I thought it was Stephen Fry. (laughs) And then it occurred to me that it wasn't, because, you know, getting a closer look, it wasn't him. And also, I looked it up, and he would have been almost exactly one year old at the time <laughs> the movie was released. So, it wasn't Stephen Fry, but a guy who kind of resembles him. 
And the psychiatrist does some word association that has an interesting outcome. Well, one interesting outcome that suggests another interesting question. The, the word association goes from mother to cold. Relax. What's the first thing you remember? My mother. What was she doing? Sneezing. I see. Now, association test. Say whatever comes into your mind after what I say. Mother. Cold. Cold. Sneezing. Sneezing. Me. You. Pills. Pills. Water. Water. Wet. Again, water. Washing up. Washing up. Naffy. Naffy. Nora. Nora. To nappy, which nappy is British for diaper, and from diaper, it goes to Nora. <laughs> And suddenly he's cured. I think it's at this point where he's, he gets this husky rasp in his voice, says, no, or, uh. <laughs> but he's, he suddenly realizes that he's not terrified of her, that he is, in fact, completely crazy about her. I'm not qualified to analyze what the connection is between diaper and Nora. <laughs> so let's just carry on. Yeah. <laughs> I think if it were a film being made now, there might be some extra meanings, but I'm not sure that's what they were trying to do. So. <laughs> so in the mess hall, as Ron mentioned earlier, it's it's kind of like a like a canteen. It's not what you picture a military mess hall to be. I think in the, the first scene, we actually see him drinking beer in there. I'm pretty sure that at least in the U.S. military nowadays, they don't give you beer in basic training. They mm. could be wrong, but I don't think so. Anyway, Horace comes in, and he's uh, a changed man. He's in uniform, but he looks sharp now. Every crease is perfect. He's got his black beret at a jaunty angle, and he's smoking a cigarette, and he walks in, and he swaggers in. His face is different, because he had been kind of scrunching up his face all the time, and now it's uh, he's not doing that. Mm. And he was also always wearing, like, a, a scarf around his neck right. to protect him, and, and that's gone, you know, so there's just... He's, he is, like you say, a completely different person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's very obvious as soon as you see it. And even his voice has changed. And he sees Nora behind the counter. He says, hi, baby. He says, come here, and pounds the counter. And she's apprehensive because this isn't the Horace that she fell in love with. She's yeah. not sure what to make of him. The Horace just presses on. He says, want to be my doll? But not the kind that goes mumbo when I squeeze it. <laughs> so Nora says... She's got to think about it. And he says, sorry, think about it. And after a few seconds, he says, well, he, he hops over the counter. Then he says, time's up. Through there. Move. And he pushes her into the kitchen. <laughs> and starts kissing her. Yeah. And this brings up one of the censors did have a concern. They said they had a little bit of concern about rape. <laughs> but again, since it's a light comedy, they decided to let it go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. And she didn't seem terribly apprehensive when he was pushing her into the kitchen. So, I, yeah. I, I think it's fair to say he wasn't really checking for consent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's a questionable one. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Although, on the other hand, the way she's acted before this, you know, wasn't any better. So. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hartnell, or Grimshaw, he's talking to the corporal about how he'll retire never having had a champion platoon. And Brown, who is the, quote, dumb guy, 
the guy who's gone through the training three times and still not gotten it right. He overhears this conversation. It turns out when Brown goes back to the other guys, they didn't know that Grimshaw was retiring. Mm-hmm. And go lightly, the accountant type proposes they should be the champions themselves. Rock and roller uh, Galloway, I think he is. Mm-hmm. He says, Why should we knock ourselves out after the way he's chased us around? But they talk about it and they realize he actually hasn't been mean to them. He's yelled a lot, but sergeants can't talk quietly, one of them says. <laughs> so they're thinking about what they should do. Bailey, who has mentioned sociology in the past and is interesting, he thinks that Grimshaw might have been trying an experiment, an experiment of being decent to all of them. And he's actually right on the money in his speculation. That's exactly what he was trying to do by treating them as the delicate blooms. But Bailey says, in my opinion, such an experiment deserves success. So they're going to do it. But then Horace comes in, smoking a cigarette, which... uh, (laughs) uh, Having just uh, pushed Nora into the kitchen, you know, what could that be about? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So then that's kind of a damper on the whole festivities because they had forgotten about Horace, who was sure to be another wreck in their efforts to succeed. But it turns out that he's still the swaggering Horace that we saw in the mess hall, and he's up for it. He's he's game. He lifts himself into bed, doing a little handstand over in the foot of the bed. He looks very pleased as he hunkers down into a fetal position to go to sleep. Uh, (laughs) He's having a nice thoughts going through his head. Right. And for me now, having been trained by films like Stripes, where they get to this exact same point, right? You have the misfits, but at some point, for whatever the reason is, they decide they need to succeed at the final. So in a movie like Stripes, you now have a montage where they would stay up all night and be teaching each other how to excel. Mm, yeah. That's not what they do here. They just all go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, a good night's sleep is good, but these are the worst of the worst. This company has never seen a platoon worse than this, and they've decided they're going to win, and they just go to bed. So, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I have a a possible theory about that, and we'll go into (laughs) later. So, the next morning, it's Reveille again. They all assemble. And one challenge after another, they, they excel at, they march in step, they do the, uh, Bren shooting and they get, uh, I think it's 15 bullseyes out of a possible 15. Right. And this is one of the things when we get into this conversation, like you don't just wake up and decide to get a bullseye. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll see. I don't know. Well, I, I will make my devil's advocate <laughs> argument at the end, although it's not really, uh, it's not an argument that I would actually wager money on, so. <laughs> but I'll make it anyway. The bayonet uh, competition, they run at the dummies and they stab them real good. Uh, they all hit them on the first try and so forth. The rope swing, they all swing across the puddle. Every, everything's going real well for them. Grimshaw tells them they're doing well. This is their last chance, so do your best. The last event is the marching maneuvers, and there's a band, an all-female band, Mm-hmm. And they're carrying big horns, French horns. I, I don't know if they're French or horns or tubas, or I assume they're French horns, but they were huge. <laughs> it's just interesting <laughs> to see <laughs> these <laughs> women carrying these four foot horns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So the band is providing accompaniment for the marching, and Grimshaw and his boys are doing a fine job, and the next thing you know, they're the champions. And yep. the fact that the chart was all the way at the bottom means nothing, because by succeeding today, that put them to the top. And I liked how they shot this, where literally you just see the commander taking his pencil and going from the bottom to the top on the chart. So it's like, okay. <laughs> After all the dust is settled, Commander Potts is addressing them, says, Here's fine a body of men as I have seen, broken all records, special recommendations outstanding. And he calls out a bunch of the men individually to assign them to juicy posts. He says, all work and no play makes Jack. Well, I think we all know what the Army thinks about Jack. <laughs> I didn't quite know what he meant by that, but it did sound like a funny line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the boys all pile into a truck, one of those big open-ended canvas-covered trucks like you see in the Indiana Jones movies carrying Nazis around. <laughs> they pile into the truck, and one of them hops out to give Grimshaw a parting gift. It's a box. When he opens it, there's a nice little satin or silk lid liner in the top of it, and it says Ronson. If it wasn't a product placement, then it should have been. It's definitely written in mile-high letters there. It's a nice lighter, and there's a cute little note in there that says to Sergeant Grimshaw from the boys, or something like that. Then Hartnell gives us a little wistful look, and uh, the boys drive off, waving out of the back of the truck, and that's the end of the show. He got his <laughs> champion platoon. Yep. Okay, well, let's have some discussion about the movie in general here. I mean, so obviously we're watching this because of Hartnell, and this mm. was part of the process of him becoming Doctor Who's, as we mentioned. It sort of helped stereotype him, and he wanted to get out of the stereotype, so he was willing to jump into something really different, like Doctor Who. What do you think about him as the sergeant versus him as the doctor? I mean, you've talked about it a little bit, but. Yeah, I really liked, I, I like both characters. I, I, I did like the sergeant as a refreshing change of pace because I don't know how familiar you are with the old show Sanford and Son, <laughs> but Red Fox was Fred Sanford and he was always scheming. He was always yeah. doing something slightly dishonest or. Majorly dishonest, is the, <laughs> you know, depending on the situation. Give me my money. No. Man. I said no. No, I want my money. I, I said no. Time, now money. get out of here. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> nah, you went and did it. <laughs> oh, I might need that money tonight. Oh, I've never had pains like this before. Oh, this is the worst one I ever had, son. Oh, it's the worst one. This is a big one. I'm dying. You hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey. Oh. Maybe that's Elizabeth. And he was a fun character to watch, but he was always up to something. And that's kind of the impression I've gotten from the doctor this first season. Whereas the sergeant just seems like a decent, down-to-earth man who's trying to do the best job he can and he's gonna retire and he'd like to accomplish this one thing before he does it he just came across as basically a, a decent guy 
probably the most famous example nowadays in American cinema of a drill sergeant is Arlie Ermey in Full Metal Jacket, who is very, very different from this character. I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. From now on, you will speak only when spoken to. And the first and last words out of your filthy sewers will be, sir. Do you maggots understand that? This is almost like the opposite extreme. It almost makes you think he's a little too nice mm-hmm. for the job, you know, but, but then again, that's part of the premise is that he's going to take a different strategy this time and, mm-hmm. you know, treat these guys like the delicate blooms that they are. <laughs> right. But anyway, he's, it's a neat change of pace from the doctor we've just seen for several episodes to see this different kind of guy. I mean, I can't picture the doctor fighting for the British in World War II, you know. <laughs> I don't think that would appeal to his sense of ego, but you can see Grimshaw doing it and doing a good job of it. It's a neat contrast. It, for me, as an actor, it's only five years between this movie and him playing Doctor Who. And, of course, there is a difference. It's a film, so unlike Doctor Who, where they're kind of doing a live play and it's easier to screw up and have that captured on film, But I feel like you can see the difference. I feel like he is in control of his faculties in a way here that even from the beginning, he was not in Doctor Who. And he eventually Mm -hmm. died of arterial sclerosis, which I think builds up over time. And I think that you don't see that here, and you do see that when he's playing Doctor Who, even when he's doing a really good job and everything. To me, just physically... He's clearly in a very different state. Yeah, and there's a little hardness or something to him uh, that you just don't see in this movie. Now, I'll say that's probably more the acting, Mm -hmm. because I think he was a hard person, so I think that was a character choice he was making. There is a really interesting clip of an interview with him after he left Doctor Who, and he was working on what they call a pantomime, right, which in England... In the holidays, they'll do a pantomime. And my understanding of it, I haven't seen a pantomime, but my understanding is it's kind of a set of stock of very silly characters. And while he's making himself up to go out and do this pantomime, he's doing this interview, and he was a pretty hard guy. One of my feelings here is, honestly, there are a whole bunch of different story threads, and there's some we didn't really spend time on because they were pretty trivial. The only reason, to my mind, to watch the film was Horace, the hypochondriac. So I have kind of almost style him as the Tlatoxel of this show. Not that it it didn't rise (laughs) to that, Tlatoxel being our our favorite character of the first season of of Doctor Mm -hmm. Who. But his storyline is the only one that's really interesting to follow and has a full arc. Without that character, this movie would be uh, close to unwatchable. I mean, it would just be boring. Mm -hmm. He does add a lot to the movie, although I probably would have enjoyed more seeing him. Well, I don't know. This is just something that popped into my head, so I could be wrong about this. But I I enjoyed the swaggering Morris enough that it it (laughs) might have been nice to see that conversion a little earlier. But, oh, well. I haven't given that a lot of thought. That just popped into my head. (laughs) So getting back to something you mentioned earlier, just in terms of the theme of the film, I think there is a very strong theme to the film, which is if you treat people nicely, they'll respond in kind. And also that people choose their situation and they can get out of their situation by simply choosing to get out of it. And I think those are two interesting things. And on the treat people nicely thing, I appreciate what the film is saying. And obviously, I don't think that you should be cool to people, but 
I'm not sure in a training people for military service situation that treating them like delicate flowers and being nice to everyone Mm -hmm. is the way to go. Because the ultimate goal here are people are supposed to go into combat and keep their heads around them. And one of the ways I believe it's legitimate that you make that possible is that you get them used to dealing with stress and dealing with situations that aren't great. Mm -hmm. So what do you think? Well, I think that's accurate. I mean, for preparing people for combat or potential combat at this point, I think this is kind of the equivalent of the reserves. So there's no assurance they're ever going to go into combat, but still you want them to be ready for it because that's the whole point of them being there. But I was thinking, I guess, more in terms of would it work to let them become the champion platoon, not necessarily would it teach them any Mm long-term survival things. Yeah, I I think it's unlikely, given what we saw of them up to the last few minutes, it's unlikely that they would make a huge turnaround. Although the devil's advocate side of things is it's conceivable that over the course of this 10 weeks, they were learning all these skills, but they were just, for various reasons, whether they were lazy or just not applying themselves or whatever, Maybe they just didn't have the incentive. Maybe simply because Grimshaw did stray from the standard practices of the drill sergeant. Maybe that was actually a mistake on his part, not only for the reasons that you said, but just because he's straying from something that's been demonstrated to work Mm. in getting these guys ready. You could argue that once they had all the knowledge, they just didn't have the gumption or the initiative or the desire (laughs) Until that last night when they find out that the sergeant who really wasn't such a bad guy, you know, he's, he's going to be retiring and he's, he was counting on them and he's doesn't have much hope of that, but, but they, they might be able to do it if they really Mm -hmm. apply all the things they learned. So yeah, it's, it's a long shot. I don't know, not having grown up there, but I could see there being a kind of british exceptionalism here which is the idea that oh well we're british so of course we can all get a bullseye it's just a matter of deciding <laughs> to do it right and and that may have yeah. been a part of this right yeah that could be I, I know certainly i'm not an expert on british history but i've read all the flashman books multiple times which are about a victorian soldier they're fictional but through those you get a lot of the british mindset as it was in the Victorian era, at least among his particular class of people, which were reasonably well-to-do army officers. And there was a pervasive sense that the British are the people who do things right. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so there could be some of that in this. Yeah. yeah. That's one side. And then the other, as we say, is, well, okay, so you have your lifelong hypochondriac who's really, really deep into this. And then literally 30 seconds of word association and he's totally cured. (laughs) You know, you have the guy who's been dumb all this time. And yeah, he gets a little help from the folks, but he just decides to stop being dumb and and suddenly (laughs) excels. So just, you know, all these cases, I, I feel like, again, it's a theme. It's a theme in the movie, but it's a little hard to buy. Yeah. I, I agree. It's pretty unlikely. But then again, given the kind of movie it is, it's probably not too profitable to dwell on it. Too <laughs> <long>. <laughs> well, so speaking of, we look at the overall merit of the film. I think a reason it was successful, it was a huge surprise success. And obviously it went on to spawn 30 more films. 
is that the characters are gentle and nice and you can kind of like them. And since several or probably half a dozen of the actors would appear over and over again in the films and it wasn't the same character, but they would bring the same character template. And Mm. so I think that people would look forward to, oh, when they're doing a funny police comedy or or nurse comedy or whatever, what will this guy's upper class twit character be like? And <laughs> and that sort of thing. And and I think because it was gentle and you can like the characters, I think that probably was a draw for the series, right? Hmm. And probably some of the risque humor that wasn't mm-hmm. really super risque, but they, they were kind of pushing the envelope yeah, with the censors there. But probably right. a lot of people got a kick out of that. And my understanding is that the later films got a lot raunchier along those lines. Mm-hmm. And of course, the censorship probably went down or, or went away. My impression looking around at people who do blogs about carry on and and write books about it is that this is seen as not particularly good, but important just because it kicked off the series. But people don't talk about this movie the way they talk about some of the other carry on films. So, Hmm. you know, a little bit like we watched the Daleks, right? It's like, well, this is important. This kicked off Doctor Who, but it's (laughs) not really a great story now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yeah, At its moments. (laughs) Yeah. That's pretty much what I think about this movie overall, is that it had its moments. And the actors, you mentioned that though a lot of them will appear in later carry-on movies, and that makes sense because they're a, they're a pretty good crew of actors overall. Mm-hmm. They're entertaining, and they have a lot of them have potential that's not exploited. I mean, hardly any of them are really exploited as they could have been. You know, right. A lot of uh, quiet moments that could have instead have been filled with them doing more funny stuff. (laughs) Really, only Horace got a lot of screen time and everyone else got just a few seconds here and there. Another approach they could have taken would be to cut out a number of those side stories and maybe have one other character who had some substantial development, maybe Charlie, who's the groom, Mm -hmm. something like that. But this is what they did. Now, a funny thing is, You know, they made a lot of money with these films, but they did not pay the actors and the actors would grumble and complain, but they didn't really do anything about it. I don't know, but I kind of theorize that it might be because of a kind of British actor thinking at the time, which was, well, we're actors. We just do our job. There's a sense of like, you just do your job. You're not trying to be a movie star in the American sense or whatever. Yeah. But to whatever degree that's true, I think they kind of allowed themselves to be taken advantage of because the producers have said, look, we were making tons of money off these guys and we weren't paying them anything. So (laughs) from the producer's perspective, you know, well, this works well for us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So overall, I'd say if we're addressing the question of worth watching, which is probably (laughs) something we should do here, if we're going by the template of, you know, a friend shows up, do you make them watch it or do you put it on pause and get back to it later? This would, for me, definitely not a, you got to see this. It was mm-hmm. a light diversion. You know, it had some good stuff in it here and there, but it's definitely, I'm not going to Shanghai a friend and having to sit down and, and sit through the whole thing. It's fun for what it is, but must see it ain't for me. <laughs> yep. Yep. I agree. Let's talk about 
what we're doing next season. So we sort of teased this a little bit. And as we discussed last week, our plan is to alternate between a season of Doctor Who and a season focusing on some other TV show or movie series or director, that sort of thing. Now that we've completed our first season of Doctor Who, we're very excited to embark on our next TV series, which will be The Prisoner. The Prisoner was an amazing series, and it's even more relevant now than when it was released. And we're doing this because Guy was interested in seeing it, and it turns out that, like Doctor Who, The Prisoner is a series that I have been obsessed with for decades. So once again, I can guide us along, and Guy can be experiencing it for the first time. We're going to start with an introductory episode next week that will include an intro to the series as a whole, and a walkthrough of the first episode, not of The Prisoner, (laughs) but of the series that made Patrick McGowan famous and led to The Prisoner. It was known in the UK as Danger Man and in the United States as Secret Agent. And in fact, the song Secret Agent Man comes from that series. Okay. One of the interesting things, which we'll talk much more about in the intro, is that there is no canonical ordering of The Prisoner episodes. In fact, because of the way it was filmed and some challenges in their production process, you actually can't create a canonical ordering of the episodes that makes sense. (laughs) But this is great for fans because that means we get to do our own ordering. What we're going to present is the official worth-watching order, or at least my official (laughs) worth-watching order of the series. And part of the idea here is then I'm going to be dragging guy through this in the order i think it should be watched and we will see how that works for him fair enough and one thing i'll say is the what we're going to be doing in terms of order is different from what anyone else on the internet has done so (laughs) so to see what that's all about join us next week for our first episode of prisoner worth watching Do you know what a mandolin is in, in oh, uh, cooking terms? I, I think you told me about this maybe a couple <laughs> of years ago, but go ahead. Yeah, so I have done a lot of cooking. I really get into cooking, buy every cooking device, etc. I'd actually even gone through some training where the chef warned us how dangerous a mandolin can be. And all the documentation with it says, you know, make sure you use this safety thing that you run the food along. So a mandolin is a very, very sharp blade. And the idea is that you can use it to slice very thin slices of meat or vegetables or whatever, and you can do it quickly because you run them along this little track and they go over this blade. And they provide a safety knob where that you put on top of the food and you push through this blade. And I, I don't remember what it was that I was slicing, but it, the safety knob wasn't working very well. And I thought, you know, I'll just be careful. I mean, come on. And so it was like a tomato or something or a potato. And I start, I, so I take the safety thing off and I just put my hand on it and, and I'm pushing the potato through this blade and running it back and forth. And within seconds, (laughs) I took off the end of my finger. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, and then I had this weird experience where I was making this kind of fancy turkey and, and I, it was in the oven and I went to the emergency room and, I'm, and then I'm like, well, can you please do this quickly? Cause I have a turkey in the oven. <laughs> <It's gonna try. laughs> I, I was, I was so stupid. I wouldn't even like think to turn off the oven. <laughs> I just kept it going. Um, the, uh, the doctor found that amusing. Um, and it took months you know before my finger was kind of normal i mean now you wouldn't even really be able to tell but uh but yes anyway uh this is kids you know the whole point of this has been take the kitchen seriously you can slice (laughs) off the end of your finger if you don't actually follow the instructions you fool